I want to say first, uh, I, because I can see new faces. If you're new here, my name is Norbert. I'm pastor of the church. I'd like to welcome you. We see ourselves as a small church with a big heart. So I pray that you will find a new home in this church. Amen. Amen to that. Now, last week I told you about uh, a little bit about what happened to me when I got back from Cuba. Last week I just got back from Cuba. If you're not here, I, I went to a mission in Cuba with a team from Orlando. And as I come here, I pass through the immigration. I got flagged for about 20 minutes. And the immigration officer has been asking me a lot of questions. Questions that has been repeated again and again, like, what's the name of the church you went to? How many were you there? Uh, how many days were you there? You know, there are so many suspicions about it. But, but I consider that to be like a privilege. Um, privilege because I see that as like um, uh, a badge of honor for God. But what I want to tell you today is what happened when I entered Cuba. So those of you who don't know, Cuba is still a communist country. It's not as strict as, say, North Korea, where you go there and you, your rights totally cease. So when you go to Cuba, you still have some of your rights, but not much like here in the United States. So when I entered Cuba, and as I hand over my passport, I was, I was like panicking. I was, there's so many things going through my mind. I was like thinking, if this officer asks me why I'm here, I'm going to be in trouble. So when we were preparing to go to Cuba... We were told that if we are asked about our purpose of visit, we were supposed to tell that we are tourists, which is also true. We are tourists. So was, I was, um, as I was handing over my passport, I was thinking, if this officer asks me uh, the purpose of my visit, I'm going to say I'm a tourist. But if this officer asks me, where are you going? Where are the places that you're going to visit? Then I'm, I'm, I'm caught red-handed. Because I did not prepare. I didn't know. All the itineraries that we have has something to do with preaching, <laughs> preaching and visiting churches. There's no beaches. There's no uh, public places. There are no malls to visit. They were not supplied to us. So if, if the officer asked me that, then I'm going to be in trouble. Second thing is that uh, each of us were assigned check-in luggages. So I have with me two check-in luggages, which it, I did not prepare I was just told that the check-in luggages that were assigned to me were full of food and drugs, not the illegal kind of drugs, the medicine kind of drugs. And so if the officer, if I was thinking, if the officer asked me the content of my luggage, then I'm going to be in trouble. So I was thinking, this is the, first, this is the last time I'm going to have to call my wife, or else I'm going to go to jail. So I hand over my passport, and I said a little prayer. And then I realized I just preached last Sunday before I went to Cuba. And my preaching was about God's providence. And I realized that God's providence is about God is in control. So I was like, all right, God's in control. But then I also remember that one of the meaning of providence doesn't mean that there's no more crisis. Providence can mean God, uh, there's crisis, but God is in control of the crisis. So I was like thinking, everything is in God's hands now. So I hand over my passport, and the non-smiling immigration officer looked at me, looked at my passport, and it was like, your name sounds Cuban, because my last name is Manzano. And the next thing I know, he stamped on my passport, and he said, enjoy your stay. I mean, I believe with all my heart that God intervened that day. Today, I want to talk to you about God's intervention 
in the life of in the life of Abigail. Let's pick up the story from 1 Samuel 25. Now, to those of you who are not familiar with the book of Samuel, in 1 Samuel 25, David, the king, was on the run. He's a fugitive from justice. And Saul was in pursuit of him. Saul wants to kill him. And the guy who anointed both of them, Saul and David, just died. Samuel. Samuel was considered to be the last of the judges. Let me explain this real quickly. So we all know the story from Egypt. Moses led the people of Israel from Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, settled in the wilderness, but Moses died in there. Joshua picked up, became the next leader, and he was the one who led them to the promised land. In the promised land, after he died, there were a series of judges or slash warriors that led the people of Israel for almost 400 years. And the last of the judges is named Samuel. And Samuel, before he died, anointed both Saul and David. Now, here's the problem. Who's going to replace Samuel? There are two anointed people. It's Samuel, sorry, it's Saul and David. Now, we all know from the story also that God rejected Saul. He's not qualified to be king. That's why Samuel anointed David. So now, we know that it's Samuel. So if you're going to put your money on someone, put your money on David. Your bet should be on David. But is David going to replace Samuel? How is it going to play out in this story? Let me read to you something that should catch your attention the moment you read the book of Judges. At the very end of it, in Judges 21, verse 25, it says, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. During the time of the Judges, people are doing what they want. There's total chaos. That's why there's a series of judges. God would raise a series of judges. So this statement is like a transition statement from the book of the Judges to the book of Samuel. What we have, what we should be thinking about is who's going to transition to? Who will replace Samuel as the last of the judges? So if Samuel is the last judge and he died, what's going to happen now? So 1 Samuel 25 is a story of God's intervention to make sure that David sits on the throne. That's all about 1 Samuel 25. See, in 1 Samuel 25, we are told that David was in hiding because Saul was in pursuit. And at this time, he needed food. So he sent one of his men to a place in Carmel to a businessman called Nabal. And then the Bible gives us a small description of this couple, Nabal and his wife. 1 Samuel 25, verse 3. This is crucial to our understanding of the text. It says, Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. Anyone whose name is Abigail? No? Beautiful name. And the woman was discerning and beautiful. Sounds like my wife. But the man was harsh and badly behaved. It sounds like me. <laughs> he was a Calebite. So there's a contrast between Nabal and his wife. Interesting. And this is the guy whom David is asking for food, for help. So as soon as David's men presented their request, Nabal insulted David. This is what he said in verse 10 and 11. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? Now, it's very clear from the text that Nabal knows David. He knows he's the son of Jesse. Now, why would Nabal know David? Because David fought Goliath and he won. He became an instant celebrity. This guy must know David. 
But he doesn't care because at this point, David was on the run. He's a fugitive from justice. So this is what he said. There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to the men who come from I do not know where? He's practically saying, I don't know. I don't owe anything to David. He's not king. He's just an instant hero. And then he faded away. That's it. I don't owe him anything. But you see, in honor-shame culture, what Nabal did to David was a direct insult. It was like a slap in the face. Remember last week, we talked about slap in the face? When you are slapped with the right hand, a backhand slap, it's an insult. And so Nabal did this to David. So as soon as David heard about Nabal's refusal, he strapped his sword and he marched together with his 400 men. They were all mad that they are not getting any help. David was so mad that he was willing to do one thing, and it's to kill every living person in the camp of Nabal, even those who were innocent. See, what David was about to do was something that Saul did in the earlier story of 1 Samuel 25. See, David was about to do something foolish. He was about to take innocent lives. And that will disqualify David to rule as king because as God's representative, you have to rule with righteousness and justice. And if David does this, he will be disqualified forever. But in God's mercies, God intervened. The question is how? Nabal's wife, Abigail, who the Bible said to be wise and beautiful, think about Proverbs 31, took matters into her own hands, organized a team, packed some food, and went to David. And as he met David, as she met David on the road, Abigail pleads her life and the life of her household. This is how she negotiated her way out, verse 25 and 26. She said, Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. She was talking about her husband. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. Now, I don't know about you, but what kind of parents would name their son folly? Or foolish. I'm not sure about that, but that's the meaning of Nabal's name. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. And now, then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. What she's saying is that whoever is the enemy of David, be like as fool as her husband. Very interesting. Now watch closely because she said something very interesting here. She said, the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt. That's the language for intervention. God intervened through Abigail. The Lord has restrained you from God blood guilt. What is blood guilt? What was she talking about? See, according to the Bible, the Israelites are restricted to kill. They're, not, they're prohibited to kill. You get this from the Ten Commandments. You shall not kill, or you shall not murder, to be exact. Not only that, the Israelites are not permitted to retaliate. You're not supposed to to get even. That's in the Bible. In fact, in Leviticus 19.18, it says to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And that means non-retaliation. But what David was about to do, what he has in mind is to attack that city where Nabal was and to kill every living person there. 
You see, this is exactly what Saul did. That's why he was disqualified in the first place. You know, in the earlier story, Saul was seeking the life of David. And then he went to a town. It's called the city of Nob. David was there the day before. And he asked for food from the priests. And the priest gave him food, bread, and to his men. And Saul did not like it. So Saul ordered the massacre of 85 priests and the whole town of Nob, men, women, children, infant, even animals were killed. Saul was disqualified because of this. And this was what David was about to do. He was about to disqualify himself. But God in his mercies intervened on his behalf. You know, there's a specific word for this in the Bible, the word for blood guilt. It's called transgression. Anyone heard about it? Transgression. Transgression is when a person breaks the law. You're transgressing the law, breaking the law. There's another word that's more contemporary in the New Testament. It's called trespass. Forgive us our trespass as we forgive those who trespass against us. Trespass is a connotation of when you overstep your bounds. It's called trespassing. Correct? When you overstep your bounds, you're trespassing. So the idea is that the Old Testament law is like a boundary marker. That's your limits. And if you overstep your bounds, you are breaking the law. You are transgressing or trespassing. How does this sound like? Bible said, you shall not covet your, your neighbor's property because they're not yours. That's the limit. You cannot bear false witness because you're not there in the first place to witness. You cannot commit adultery because she's not your wife. Are you following me? The law is supposed to be a boundary marker. And Saul crossed the line when he massacred the whole town of the city of Nob. And David was about to do that. But God intervened on his behalf. You see, when we break a promise, it's also called transgression. When we fail to act in accordance or in contradiction to our new identity in Christ, it's also called transgression. When we fail to behave in a manner that reflects the glory of Jesus Christ, it's also called transgression. It is in the Lord's Prayer that we say, forgive us our trespasses or transgression, so, because we also forgive those who transgress against us. And clearly, Saul transgressed the laws of God when he ordered the massacre of the whole town. May I remind you that the king is not above the law. They, Saul may be king, but he is not the king. And David was in the same situation. See, Nabal may have insulted him, but he has no right whatsoever to take the life of Nabal or to take his wife or to take his property. If David is about to sit on the throne and become the replacement of Samuel, he must do what is right. He must rule as a righteous king. He cannot overstep his bounds. You see, in this story, David was having a bad day. And I understand that sometimes we also have bad days. Anyone had bad days this week? Yes? We can identify with David. David had a bad day. He was insulted. So he wants, he wants to get even. You see, in those days that we have bad days, it is when those days that we let go of patience, kindness, and gentleness, right? It's when we speak harshly to our loved ones, sometimes to our wives. I'm guilty of that. We are guilty of that sometimes. This is what Christians call day off. Day off is when, you know, six days a week you're, you're a good boy, 
And then you just, I just want to release. I just want this day off. I just want to let go. I just want to say what I have in mind. I just want to be free to say what I feel. Day off. You see, when you go on a certain diet, you eat restrictively, and then there's one day that you want to let go and just eat whatever you want. It's called cheat day. Correct? Anyone on a diet? <laughs> you see, in the kingdom of God, cheat days, day offs, and timeouts are non-existent. There should never be a time when you and I should justify our bad behaviors and ruin the testimony because we just need a day off. There should never be a time when we should stop carrying our cross. Discipleship is not just on Sundays. Discipleship is a daily thing. Discipleship begins the moment you say yes to Jesus and ends when Jesus tells you, today you will be with me in paradise. See, discipleship is a lifetime as it is a lifestyle. Discipleship is not just a uniform that you put on Sundays. Discipleship is not a career where you and I can retire after many years. Discipleship is who we have become as a result of coming to Jesus. It's our new identity that Jesus paid for and bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. So either you are a disciple or you're not. This is not like the genders today, how we define genders that you can identify with and the next day you change your mind. Discipleship is... Do you ever wonder why Jesus used the phrase born again? Because discipleship is being born again. It's having a new identity, a new affinity, a new family. When you are born into the family, you are born into that family for life. That's why discipleship is a lifetime as it is a lifestyle. And so David may be having a bad day, but it doesn't justify what he was planning to do. So God intervened. Thanks to his wives and beautiful Abigail, David spared the life, spared the lives of Nabal and his men. David also was spared from committing blood guilt or transgression. So Abigail went home, didn't speak to her husband, because that night her husband was drunk. Verse 36. It says, And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. Now this guy must be very rich. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. You see that? Very, 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 very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. That's how discerning she is. She knows how to do things with correct timing. In the morning when the wine was, had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. It's a classic uh, stroke. And then about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. This is heart attack. You see, not only that, God intervened through Abigail, God also intervened by striking Nabal. Now back to the question. Does this story prove that David passed the test? The answer is no. Does this story make David qualify to rule as king? The answer is also no. Because this story, we have to consider the bigger plot of the story. See, at the beginning of the book of Samuel, the people asked for a king. There were judges, and yet the people asked for a king. 
And by asking a king, they have rejected God. It's like saying, God, we don't want you as king. We want a human king. Give us a king. They have rejected God in the first place. You see, in the Bible, there's only one who's qualified to sit on the throne and to rule the kingdom of God. It is God. David is not qualified. Saul is not qualified. No one is qualified except Yahweh. So this story only proves that without God's intervention, David would have been another Saul. The story only proves that God alone is fit to rule as king. But what we do, naturally, when we read the Bible, we read the Bible and look at David as the main protagonist in the story. We want to become like David. So when you, say for example, read the story of David and Goliath, David fought Goliath, he won, I want to become like David. Of course, that's the story. But you see, in the story, we have to consider that God is the main protagonist in the story from Genesis all the way to Revelation. It is God who is the main protagonist in the story. How do I say that? Because God is the one who called Israel from Egypt. God is the one who split the Red Sea so they could have, they, they can enter the wilderness. David was the one, God was the one who led the people of Israel into the promised land. God was the one who called the judges. God was the one who anointed the kings. It is God all along. It is God who redeemed the people of Israel. So when we read our Bible, it's not how to learn how to become like David. We read the Bible instead, how to learn to become like God. That's the proper way to read the Bible. See, if we read the Bible, this story then becomes God's intervention in the life of David so that he can rule under God. Now, flash news. God intervenes, yes? But God doesn't always intervene. How do we know that? Because later in the story, God will not intervene when David commits a mistake. Later in the story, David will take someone else's wife and someone else's life. We're talking about Uriah and Bathsheba. God intervened afterwards when he disciplined David. And there's a language for this kind of discipline. Let me explain this. See, back to the wilderness, Mount Sinai, so the Israelites just came from Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, settled in at the foot of Mount Sinai, and God appeared to them. So Moses got the, the latest iPad Pro, two, two of them, the tablets, all right? So he got from the mountain, and when he got from the mountain, he saw the people worshiping the golden cow. And he was so mad, he broke the iPad Pros. And God gave him a second copy. You know that, right? There was a second copy. And as God gave him a second copy, God revealed his name and the meaning of his name. You want to know what, what the meaning of God's name is? Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7. It says, And the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, that's the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation? That is the meaning of God's name. And what stuck to me is that God is slow to anger, abounding in love, 
with steadfast love. You know what steadfast love means? There's only one word in the Bible for steadfast love. It's called chesed. Chesed. It means constant love. Love that doesn't change. And when Israel rebelled against God for the second time, they were about to enter the promised land, but they were so afraid of the giants, they said, we're going to go back to Egypt. So they said, let's call it quits. We're not going there. And God was mad. And so Moses intervened again. And he appealed on the name of God because he remembered that God's name means steadfast love. This is what it says in Numbers 14, verse 18. The Lord is slow to anger abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. The word steadfast love is one word. It's hesed. It's about a deep affection and personal commitment to love not on the basis of one's worth, but on the basis of God's character. God loves on the basis of his character. Not because you and I deserve it or not deserve it, but because it is God's character to love. He said, it's about God's unchanging love based on God's unchanging character. Think about steadfast love, and I want you to hold that thought. I'm going to shift my gears here and talk about Jesus. Have you ever thought why there was a time when Peter asked Jesus how many times we should forgive? Remember that? Peter asked Jesus, how many times should we forgive? Because to Peter, forgiveness is like, it's required. I have to forgive. But once, twice, three times, it's generous. But should I forgive more than three or four or five or six? In fact, he said seven. Because to him, seven is perfection. It's generous already. Jesus, should I forgive seven times? You'll be surprised because Jesus said differently. He said in Matthew 18, 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Really? 77 times? How long have you been forgiving your spouse? 77 times. Now, Peter understood that we have to forgive, but is there a limit to forgiveness? Should there be limits to forgiveness? Now, Jesus answered him, by going back to an Old Testament text. He went back to an Old Testament text. See, earlier in the story of Genesis, Cain and Abel were brothers, but Cain murdered his brother in cold blood. But God loved Cain, so he tried to protect Cain and put a mark on him so that no people will retaliate on Cain. Let me read to you Genesis 4, verse 15. And the Lord said to him, Not so, if anyone kills Cain... Vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. This is a figure of speech. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Seven, seven is just a figure of speech. It doesn't mean really seven, seven, literally. But a figure of speech. It means this is terrible. If you retaliate on Cain, God will avenge on his blood. This is to mark, this mark is to prevent retaliation. This mark is to protect Cain from retaliation. So Cain had children, his children had children, up to the sixth generation, and then you go down to Genesis chapter 4. His sixth generation's descendant's name is Lamech. And Lamech killed a person, probably killed two. And then he remembered that God protected Cain with that 
with a vengeance, with that sevenfold vengeance. So he said in verse 23 and 24, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech is 77-fold. This is where Jesus got the 70 times 7, or 77. What he's trying to say is that if people retaliate on me and I'm Lamech, there will be a bloodbath. There will be no ending to retaliation. And Jesus took this and echoed this and reversed it in the form of forgiveness. And therefore, what Jesus is saying is that forgiveness must be limitless. It's not just seven. It's not just 77 times. It's a limited kind of forgiveness. What Jesus is trying to say is that your forgiveness must be patterned and based on the basis of God's character, which is steadfast love, chesed, abounding in love, slow to anger, extending to thousands of generations. You see, as citizens of the kingdom, we have a mandate to avoid retaliation, but also a mandate to forgive. Would you say amen to that? Do you think we have an option not to forgive? I don't think so. If you're a Christian, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, you have only one option. At least you have an option. It's to forgive. But you may say, Pastor, I'm not God. I cannot forgive. If you only know the horrible things people did to me, you will understand that why I cannot forgive. I cannot forgive. And you know, even if I can forgive, he doesn't deserve it. Anyone can identify with that? No, the Bible says God is slow to anger, abounding in love. God forgives because of his character. That's why the first half of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls us to be perfect, Matthew 5.48. Be perfect as much as your Father in heaven is perfect. Perfect doesn't mean moral perfection. Perfect here means righteous disposition. We are called to become like God, to imitate God, to reflect God. And forgiveness perfectly imitates God. As God forgives, we forgive. So when you pray the prayer of Jesus, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, you are imitating God because you're forgiving. Are you with me? This, the prayer is beautiful. This is the reason why Jesus taught us this prayer. But this prayer did not just start with forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. This prayer starts with your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is this all about? This is an acknowledgement that God alone is in charge of his kingdom. This is an acknowledgement that Jesus is king. This is not just a, a way to make God feel important. When we say, may your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven, we are allowing ourselves to come under, in humility, under our, with our knees, under the authority of God. It's like saying, I, I'm, I'm, I have nothing to say. I'm under you. I will submit to you. This, this is not like, you know, Christians, when they pray this prayer, they, they, cannot, they cannot wait until they give their shopping lists. So they say, thank you, Lord, for being nice. And here's my shopping list. Number one, I would like this. Number two, I would like this. Number three. See, the Lord's Prayer is a well-structured prayer to tell us exactly who we are in front of God. May your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Prayer is, first and foremost, 
coming to the throne of God and acknowledging that he alone is king. Everything else that follows in the prayer is aligned with the will of God. What is that? The bread. Provision. It's God's will to give us provision. Well, it's about forgiving our sins. It is God's will to forgive us. What about delivering us from evil? It is God's will to deliver us from evil. See, everything else is God's will. But we first have to acknowledge about God and His kingdom and His will. And what this does when you pray this, we automatically imitate God. You see, we echo the steadfast love of God when we forgive. So when we say, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, we're imitating God. When we pray this prayer, we are becoming like God. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 5.48. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. You have to learn how to forgive because God forgives. You know, God forgives not because we deserve it. God forgives because that is his character. So if you're saying, Pastor, I cannot forgive because he doesn't deserve it, we're not acting like God. We're not acting in righteousness of God. And I like, I'm, I'm thinking, why is it hard to forgive? I think it's hard to forgive, to forgive because we're thinking of a lot of things. But it's not the fear of trusting again. It's not the fear of getting hurt again. You know why it's hard to forgive? Because we think the other person doesn't deserve it. Really. There's flaw in our understanding of justice and righteousness. Beloved, that's why it's called mercy and grace. It must be undeserved. You're forgiving because it is undeserved. We're asking God for forgiveness because we too do not deserve forgiveness. See, the only reason why we can come to the throne of God is because we do not deserve it. No, Jesus is not thinking we are worth saving. That's why he's going to forgive us. The reason why Jesus is forgiving is because we know, he knows that we need help. We cannot save ourselves. See, God forgives not on the basis of our worth, but on the basis of his unchanging character. And God chooses to forgive even though he knows that you and I will likely do it again. Sometimes when we forgive, there's a condition. Make sure you don't do it again. I'm going to forgive you, but don't do it again. I mean, what kind of forgiveness is that? God's forgiveness is unconditional. You see, I think what happened here is that forgiveness, when we pray the prayer, forgiveness is God's way to intervene in our lives. There's, you see, it, intervention is not always in the context of danger. Intervention can also come in the form of forgiveness. Because if we are not forgiven, then we are not fit to access God. We're not fit to worship God. We need God's intervention and forgiveness. Well, that means any time, any minute, every day, every hour, we can access that forgiveness. And it's for us. God has made it available for us. That is God's way of intervening in our lives. Why do we need God's intervention in our lives? Because we need to be delivered from evil every day. That's a prayer. We need to be kept from temptation every day. And when we fall, God intervenes. He forgives. But that forgiveness must have a condition. You also must forgive others. So the next time you pray the prayer, I'd like you to remind yourself the meaning of God's name. Let me repeat to you the meaning of God's name. 
Exodus 34, 6 and 7, it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Are you waiting for God's intervention? You pray this prayer. God will intervene in your life. Let's pray. I want to take this moment as I pray for you. If you have identified with the sermon, if this resonates with you, and if God is, has spoken to you in, in a personal way, and you're saying, I, I, wanna, I want help, I need to forgive someone, but I just don't know how, but I'm making a decision today. I want to pray for you. All, all eyes are closed. If you're the person, please raise your hand so I can pray for you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you're a kind of person who feels that you want, you want God to intervene in your life right now, you feel guilty of something, you, you made a mistake, that you feel that, that maybe you don't deserve forgiveness, I want to pray for you too. God is offering forgiveness to you. I want you to raise your hand so I can pray for you. Thank you. Thank you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge who you are. We acknowledge that you are merciful and gracious and slow to anger. You abound in steadfast love, the love that never changes. You are faithful. You keep your promises to us, always forgiving every time we come to you and ask you for forgiveness. Father, I pray. To those of us here who raised their hands, who are having a hard time forgiving people, I pray that as they make their decision today, I pray that your Holy Spirit will flood their hearts with grace. Let them feel the love so that they can also release that love to someone else. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will convict our hearts today. Even for those who feel guilty of doing something wrong. Father, thank you very much for giving us access every time to the throne of grace so that we can come boldly because of the blood of Jesus Christ that was paid in full. That's the reason why we can come to your forgiveness. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will also convict our hearts and speak to us and help us feel your love for us. Father, surround us with your love. Wrap us around with your arms. Let us feel this abounding love and steadfast love. Father, I pray today, those even who are listening online, I pray, Father, that you will also speak to them in your most special way. Speak to us. Surround us with your love. In Jesus' name.